quick before I do jump on the sermon. How many of you from church came to the Heal America event this week? And we had a, like one of our um, good friends, uh, Bishop Omar from South Dallas, uh, led Heal America, which is a really beautiful cultural event, just talking about the issues related to racism today that our country is dealing with. And so it was just really awesome to be involved. And I, my dad's here, and I just have to say, my parents are here, my, my dad, really proud of him. He started a, this deal called Momentum Conversations, in which we'll be having, um, you know, pastors from different communities, different, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different parts of the city to come together to have conversations about, about racism and about what their experiences are and share each other's stories. And so there's just a lot of beautiful things going on there. And so um, those guys are going to be in Minneapolis next month. So be pr- praying for them. You know, if you want to check out that, I would encourage you to go watch the, the link. It's called Heal America. I don't know what the website is. We can send it out in an email. But anyway, just want to make quick note of that. Um, I want to pull you directly in to a conversation I had with God this week. One of the things that I usually do when processing things that God is talking to me about is that I generally wait and sit on things, sometimes for weeks, months, even sometimes years, there are things that God has spoken to me that I've waited and have been waiting years to talk about. And because I don't think, like, it would be, like from a pastor perspective, one of the things that you can sometimes do is rush to tell everybody some new exciting thing that you've learned or some new exciting thing that you're talking to God about. But some things, they take a while to marinate. But I want to pull you directly into a conversation that I'm having with God on this week um, because I felt like real compelled to share. And this week, I was talking with God about some personal places of compromise in my own life. And in this conversation, I was asking God to help me see what it was that was affecting me negatively. And what I felt like God was saying, and I want you to hear this one statement, if you hear any statement, is He said, you are living as if there is no enemy. felt like the Lord spoke to me. He said, you are living as if there is no enemy. Now, one of the values that I've learned over the last decade of ministry and walking with God is trust in the God who holds the pen of the world and who crafts the story of the world and crafts the story of our lives into a beautiful story. And in this place, we trust that God is good and that He is greater than any resistance that we're going to experience in this life. How many can say amen to that? And I've, I've also realized in that process, how many of you grew up in a church that was, that was all about spiritual warfare? Like, so I grew up in that environment, and I believe in that kind of stuff, 
But I realized that there were a lot of people who had the devil too big and God too small. You, you know what I'm talking about? And what, and what happens is, is that you see people who will use fear and they'll spiritualize their fear and call it spiritual warfare. And like this is something that you see. It's like the, it's like the devil is under every rock and we're just going to pray the anointing fire of God down every time that, you know, anything happens because there, and what we do is we end up, we end up putting spiritual terms on the lack of trust in God. And we, we have fear of this, this enormous devil that's out to get us at every turn. But trust in God is strengthened in the presence of resistance, not in the absence of an enemy. Like the greatest times that I've seen tr trust like really um, shaped in us is, that, is when there's the presence of resistance in our lives. And how many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you have had trust shaped in resistance? And I want to talk to you real quick just based on this conversation that I was having with God, on two lions that we see in Scripture. The first I, mention, first I will mention we'll see in 1 Peter. It says in 1 Peter 5, 6-10, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So I just want to make this point for a moment. And I want us to just to think about this and draw this to our attention. That there is an enemy, a real enemy, that wants to rob you of abundant life in Christ. And the Scripture describes him as a roaring lion who is prowling, looking for those that he can devour. Now, I want to tell you that God made us aware of this enemy for two reasons. The, the first reason is that he wants to invite us in to the work of Christ. So what is, what is one aspect of the work of Christ? Let me read to you from 1 John 3.8. It says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Everybody say, destroy the devil's work. So God has invited us to be those who are actively and intentionally not just safe from the enemy, but those who are actively 
moving forward in destroying the works of the enemy, in tearing down the sickness and the anxiety and the poverty and the oppression and the things that plague people. Like you as a Christian are called to be participating in the work of the Son of God, which is to destroy the works of the enemy. And there is an enemy. Amen? That is an active role. Secondly, we are called to resist the attacks of the enemy over our own lives. Like, the enemy does want to destroy you, and there is a real enemy. How many of you believe what I'm saying? How many of you have been on a similar path that I've been on where the last decade or so you've been realizing that we give the enemy too much credit? Like, that's the, that's the path I've been on is I've been realizing we used to give the enemy too much credit. But because we live within the life of the the tribe of Judah, who stands and will stand victorious over all the attacks of the enemy, we do not live free from fear because there's not something trying to tear us down. We live free from fear because we are with the one who holds the universe. So we cannot be those while we come free, while we come free of the burdens and the anxieties and the worries and fear, we cannot be those who become numb and dumb in our mind and our thinking. We are called to be those who are alert and sober-minded and awake and seeing this enemy who is roaring and prowling and seeking to devour. So, so what does this scripture invites us? But part of it is our assignment is to stay humble. It starts by staying humble under God's almighty hand, alert, sober-minded. We will not win the victory apart from Christ. So what do I mean specifically when I'm talking about this? What do I mean practically? I'm going to say it to you as plain as I can. There are demons and evil that you will encounter on a daily basis that we are called to resist and we won't be able to resist, resist them merely by 
by balanced emotions and good thinking. I believe in balanced emotions. I believe in healthy thinking. But balanced emotions and healthy thinking will not free you from the enemy. Only the power of Christ will do that. Y'all know, like, we've taught for years about, like, being healthy and whole emotionally and having good thinking, having a clear head. But these are not the things. You do not have the capacity in, in the balancing of your emotional posture in the world to be able to resist a devil who is seeking to devour you. Like, there has to be some grounding of our faith in the power of Christ, not just in healthy thinking. Amen? We need the power of Christ. So I want this is what I'm wanting you to acknowledge. Three things that I'm wanting you to acknowledge. First of all, the reality of an enemy. The reality of our weakness and inability to resist this enemy alone. And the victory of Christ as we remain steadfast in His presence. Okay. So, here's the three things I want you to say after me. Enemy, I see you. Self, you are not always strong. God, I trust you. Help me to live within your presence. Are you with me? I see the enemy, I recognize my inability, and I recognize the supremacy and power of God with when I remain under His wing, I remain in a safe place. Now, safe place doesn't mean easy place. We'd have to discount a whole lot of Christian history and the Bible to think that safe means easy. Right? But it does mean that we can come to Him. But one of the ways the enemy will come at us is through our own culture. There are things within our culture, this is that there are things within every culture and with our culture, and every one of us actually has a own unique microculture that is dictated by your familial and your unique upbringing. And there are things in every culture that are good. Everybody say good. There are things in almost every culture, or we could say every culture that are good. There are things in every culture that are neutral. Say neutral. Like the fact that we like hamburgers, and that in the far, you know, in in uh, Thailand they might eat a lot of rice. They eat a lot of rice. Those things are neutral. Although I. I don't know. I think a hamburger is better than rice, but but you get my, you get what I'm saying. There are there are good things, there are neutral things, and then everybody say the word evil. There are evil things that are in my culture, that are in every culture. And some of them act on us not overtly but subversively. In fact, this is the way culture as a whole is essentially subversive in nature. What subversive means, what a subversive movement is, is that it it filters or it undermines 
society slowly through beliefs and ideas. And those beliefs and ideas are translated through shared experiences that are cultural. Is this this making sense? So actually, I believe God made for the kingdom of God to be subversive. Not just overtly like, all right, we're going to come in. Constantine in the 4th century decided that Rome and the church, we're going to go kick some butt in the name of Jesus to the world. We're going to tell everybody you have to become a Christian. That's, that's actually not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom, in a lot of cases, the kingdom is working subversively. It's salt and light, as Jesus describes. Or another way that Jesus describes is it's leaven. How does leaven work in bread? It, it fills the whole loaf. And so the kingdom is subversive. But, but it's also... Our, our cultural ideas that are not kingdom are subversive in our own lives. And this is something I want you to see, is that it is very, very difficult. It's actually technically impossible, although we can get enlightenment. It's technically impossible for you to really see your own culture. It is. You cannot see the things that you were preconceived to be wired with because they exist. It's like, you know, it's like that that ugly bush that stayed at your house for a really long time. And it's clearly horrendous, but, you know, it just stayed there forever. So it's just a part of the window dressing at your house. Like, I, like the, what I'm saying is you can't see your culture, really. You can sometimes see it when you interact with people who have different perspectives and it can can expose you. Um, And I want to make this point real quick. I know this is is a, a challenge to engage, but listen to me for one quick point. More than any time in human history, more than any time in human history, are we continually connected with the ideas and the beliefs of our culture. More than any time in human history are we continually connected with the ideas and the beliefs of our culture. When you pull this phone out, when you put that computer on, when you turn the TV on, you're instantly connected with the ideas of our culture. And these things are shaping us in many cases more than anything else in our life is. Are you processing with me? So so there's a... There's all people who talk about spiritual formation. They would say this idea that every person is being formed. It, there's no question you're being formed. It's just what are you being formed by and what are you being formed into? So like, everybody just say this with me. I am being formed. That I can say about every single person in this room without knowing you, because we are all being formed by something into something. Does this make sense? And so, how do we live this life formed by Christ and free from the formation of our culture? I want to talk to you about Christian history for a moment. I'm going to be quick on it. I have a couple of pictures. I don't know if we actually have them for Zoom. We probably don't. But it's okay. I'll describe them in detail. You can show the first picture. Okay. You can tell this is a drawing of a really of a guy from way back when. 
But this guy's name is Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr lived in the in the very beginning of the of of the second century, so around like 100 AD, 150 AD. He was one of the first Christians who had classical, not one of the not the first, but there were several. But he was one of the first Christians who had this classical uh, teaching and a philosophy and Latin and Greek, and he was able to talk with the legislators and the people of the day and represent what Jesus looked like in ways that the Stoics and the Epicureans, which were philosophers of that day, could understand. And so he would, he would talk to them. One time he, talked, he was talking and the, the governor was so annoyed by his thing that he said, you're going to have to bow down to these pagan deities. And he would not bow down. And you know what they did? They chopped his head off. And the church actually dealt with this. I mean, there were, there were like so many from the early church that were like Justin Martyr. Look at the next, look at the next picture. This guy is Ignatius. I don't know if Ignatius looked like that, especially with the halo behind him. Um, and like this calm hands of prayer. But... Nevertheless, this is what we have of Ignatius. Ignatius was so radical in his preaching the gospel that he would write to the letters of the churches that he would influence and he would say, I want you to pray that when I go to testify about Christ, that, that they would send me to the uh, gladiator arena so that the mouths of the lions can become the tombs for my bones so that I can ascribe to the glory of Christ. I mean, if you know, like that's a little bit different Christian faith than what we're living in. Pray that the, the lion will, will de devour me so that I can be of the glory of Christ. So the first two centuries, and I've told this story, like I've told this idea many times, but I just feel like God tells me to keep telling it. The first few centuries of the church, the church is heavily persecuted. So go to this next picture. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? Um, this guy, everybody say Abba. This guy, they called, they called a lot of these, these old uh, you know, church fathers, they called him Abba, which means father. They, so this is Abba St. Anthony. Now, about the time that the second century was turning into the third century, the church was becoming, the church was becoming culturally acceptable, like faith was acceptable in Roman times, and there was this movement of people that went to the wilderness, and they're called the Desert Fathers. I've talked about them. This is one of the, the original Desert Fathers. Abba St. Anthony went into the wilderness for 20 years in solitude. And now get this, leaders of the world, kings would travel in the old world where they didn't have planes, cars, and all this stuff. They would travel for thousands of miles to come and meet him. After like this news of him, people would come, and there would be people who would have these physical healings. They would come to find him in the wilderness, and he would get he, they would get healed as they journeyed out to meet him. Like this stuff is like accounted for in multiple texts, and like leaders, world leaders would come out, and so like 
him going out into the wilderness away from culture actually allowed him to influence culture more than if he were within it. How crazy is that? So here's what I want you to see, though, is that you can pull this down. The Christians, they didn't run from culture when culture was trying to persecute it. They ran from the culture when the culture tolerated it and embraced it and warped the gospel into its own thing. Persecution was not the danger of the church. Cultural Christianity was the danger of the church. Are you with me? The great danger, the reason that all these people went out into the wilderness wasn't because, wasn't because Caesar was going to come and get them and kill them. It was because the Gospel was being impurified as it became culturalized. Think about this. And so, I think there is a call for us today to recognize that we have been called to influence culture but there's a problem when you sacrifice relevance to God for relevance to man. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't care how many people are listening to me. If I sacrifice my convictions about who God has called me to be, it does not matter how much influence I gain to sacrifice who God's created me to be. That's not a deal I'm making. And I think we have to take a hard look at some of the things in our culture that we think are okay and we think are acceptable and we think are normal and go, maybe, maybe these things aren't kingdom. Maybe not all of this is okay. And so, I've been dreaming of what it would look like. Oh man, don't, I don't, don't let this freak everybody out because you're going to hear the wrong thing. But... <laughs> I've been dreaming of what it would look like to have a community that was influenced by this like monastic way. Not asking anybody to go out to the wilderness, sell your home, any of that. But what I do mean is that if God has called us to be Christians, He's called us to be holy and different than the world, not the same as it. And so I've, been, I've just been dreaming up what does it look like to be an everyday monastic? What does it look like to be those who are aloof, who are, who are within the culture? We're salt and light. We are that which is influencing the world, but we're wholly other than it. We're not, trying to, we're not needing to sacrifice ourselves to gain influence. We've actually separated ourselves and remain apart. And so I wrote an article a couple years ago called Everyday Monasticism. And I want to describe what I think a community could look like that would be an everyday monastic community. And I'm finishing. I, I've been a little longer than I wanted to be. But I'm going to finish with a few things that I think describe what it looks like to be an everyday monastic. Everybody say, I'm a monk. Well, probably not, but we'll just go with it for a minute. So... Eugene Peterson said the church in society is a colony of heaven and a country of death. And so the first thing is that in order for us to be monastic community, in order for us to live this way, we have to be people of the presence of God. Now, remember what I was saying? That, that we are more connected 
to the ideas and the beliefs of our culture continually than any time in human history. Any time in human history, not even close. Like, you can't, like, what we have connection to is that we're, it's, it's like we are constantly present with the presence of our culture. And God wants us to be constantly present with the presence of Him in us and around us. So there has to be a shift in the practicality of the way we live. So I'm going to say the ways in which we are called to be present with the presence of God. Are you with me? If I say present. The first thing that a monastic person, an everyday monastic would do, is they would live in life of constant prayer. We would be present in prayer. Everybody say present in prayer. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Man, we don't like that one. And be constant in prayer. There was a desert father who, who he, the story goes that on sundown on Saturdays, he would lift his hands and start to pray at sundown. And that he would keep his hands lifted until the next day at sundown. And all of these people would come to him and he said, where would you learn to pray? And he said, I learned to pray from the demons. He said, I learned to pray because I realized I needed God's strength to resist that which was attacking me in this life. And so he learned. I'm not saying you have to lift your hands from sundown to sundown. This is just a picture. A picture that God has called us to be constant in prayer. Right now, what, our con- what is constant in our presence is what? Our phone, our computer. Uh, this is me. Like I'm talking to me. Like I'm telling you, I'm sharing this work because God's dealing with compromise in me. I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying this to me with us. Okay? Like we, we. I can't keep saying, "Oh, I want to have influence on this platform." Whenever the platform is influencing me more than I'm influencing it. You know, like I like I'm losing my mind trying to stay up on everything and stay speaking in to everything and i'm you know i'm it's pretty soon it's five six hours a day that you've spent engaged with the presence of culture not the presence of jesus we aren't called to be constant in our influence of others we'll be called to be constant in our influence in prayer even jesus went to the wilderness away from people okay the second thing that i think an everyday monastic would live out is that they would be present in pain. You will not leave the problems of this world to find the presence of Jesus, but you will find the presence of Jesus in the presence of the problems of this world. And that's what I think God has called us to do that's unique and different from that group of people. I'm not saying God didn't lead them out into the wilderness, but I think we can be those who actually are present in the midst of pain. When we have such a cultural bent to like, you know, do the Heisman and get away from pain. Don't we? Like we try so hard to get away from pain, and yet all of Scripture is inviting you to see that God is present in the brokenhearted. He's present in the hurting and the outcast. In the midst of pain, you'll find the presence of God. So everybody say prayer. Everybody say pain. These are things we're called to be present in. Third thing, I've, I said peace for you. All peace and alliteration, which I hate alliterations, but I did it just for, just for you guys. Um, the third, the, 
The third thing is people. We're called to be present with people. Did you know that in history, like we had, like, you, the, like throughout the world, the majority of people lived in these things, these things called villages. And villages would have about 100 or 200 people. And, and you know what happened in a village? Like you had all these, like you have your family, but then you had this village that helped raise your kids, that helped speak, and, and, and we would all contribute and live life with one another. The problem that we have now in the urbanization and the modernization of the world is that we have 7.5 million people living in this 40-mile square radius right now. And yet, people are more isolated than they've ever been in human history. Because God didn't call us to live in isolation. He called us to live in a village. He called us to live with people. We have to, as a community, especially during these hard times, start pressing in even more to the idea of what it means to be a village of people. You, are you with me? I don't need to know 10,000 people. I need to have, like, you know, I need to have, like, you know, people around me that aren't just my nuclear family that are with me, that see me, that talk to me every day. Not, maybe not every single day, but there's flow in life. I just believe we can do better at this. We can be more a village than even what we have been. Amen? The last thing is that we're called to be present with is we're called to be present with peace. Everybody say prayer, pain, people. Now peace. All right, God has invited us into rhythms of peace. I'm going to tell you one thing that is evil in our society. Not neutral, evil. We idolize busyness. We idolize busyness. We heroicize those who burn the candles at both ends. This is an American thing, not a kingdom thing. And this is unique in human history. It's not, it's not like all the time in human history. Everybody's just going around 80 hours a week making crap happen. That's a unique thing to our culture. And it's hard for us to see it until we leave it. But it's true. We idolize it. We feel like we have to watch a show every night. We have to go out to dinner every night. How many of you felt like you know COVID hit and you were like, Man, I haven't gone to dinner in like three weeks. I haven't been to Chili's, you know, whatever. Like, um, you know what I'm talking about? Did you know that when they observe primitive people throughout the world, and we think primitive is less, but a lot of times they live more healthy lives than us. Did you realize that when they observe that boredom is a new thing? Boredom isn't something that people, that like people in other cultures that like, like you go you know, in the Amazon, in a random tribe in the Amazon, people aren't sitting around going, man, today's boring. That's a new psychological phenomenon. We feel this restlessness in our soul to constantly be finding something to occupy ourselves so that we won't be aware of the emptiness that's in us. And we're hiding from emptiness in us. That's what we're doing. We're hiding from emptiness and we're buying a cultural narrative of busyness being the way to happiness. And it always leaves us feeling more and more empty. And the next thing you do and the next thing you do, it satisfies less and less and less. It's like a drug. It's like cocaine. It's like heroin. And it's killing people's lives. 
There's a reason we have more anxiety, more depression, more suicide than any other time is because we live in this idolizing of being busy and finding things to do. And it's not okay. It's not a neutral thing. It's an evil thing. The Scripture says to beware of busybodies. Am I telling you not to work? No, I'm not telling you to go sit in a hammock seven days a week and just like, Lord! No, because like work was from the beginning. Some people try to say that work is the curse, but work was before the curse. Work was cursed at the curse, but work was before the curse. <laughs> like after the curse, the ground was going to be really hard, but before it, the ground was going to be really good. So there was still work before the curse. So I'm not telling you we shouldn't work because it is a good thing to work. But we idolize occupying ourselves because we're hiding from emptiness here. We need peace. We need rhythms of peace. We need to be people of peace. If we want to be an everyday monastic, I'm putting this term out there because I think it, it just creates a picture then we have to be people of peace. And you want to know the thing that's most attractive to the world is right now in the midst of chaos and fear and, and emptiness, you want to know the thing that's most attractive to the world? It's peace. I'm going to tell you this. I don't normally just like share every story, but like I'm telling you this just because I, I like, and I'm going to close here. Um, I've, I've been riding Uber for the last few weeks. And I went through this season of ministry where I felt like I needed to pray for healing or have a word that would shock somebody every time I ministered to them. Like, I'm like, okay, what is your name? Like, maybe, maybe I'll get their name. Maybe I'll figure out that they have a knee problem. And I believe in all this stuff. But I've been having conversations with Uber drivers. And I've had multiple, I mean multiple Uber drivers that I just sat there I listened to their story. I prayed a simple prayer of peace at the end. And I just watched them, like with the mask on and everything, watched just tears come down their face. Because I don't have to wow them. I have to carry the peace of God. That's what people want. They don't want to be wowed by your awesome story or your awesomeness. All the things that you've done. They're interested and people who carry peace because the restlessness of our culture is deep. It is not neutral, it's evil. Okay. Why don't everybody stand? What time is it? How long did I get? Okay. All right. Okay, why don't we take out the elements of communion, the Eucharist.
All right. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what this represents, and here's what this is. It doesn't just represent. It represents as a cheapening word of the table of the Lord because it's more than symbolic. It's, it's a spiritual act to take of this bread, to drink of this juice. What this is is the reality of Christ's sufficiency. The, the presence of Jesus is sufficient. I don't need one more bit of entertainment or affirmation that I'm okay. The only thing that will solve the restlessness in your soul that comes when you get still and quiet is when you recognize that this is the sufficiency. It's not healthy thinking or, or good emotions. All of those things matter. It's not like the right, the right appropriate amount of scheduled self-care. It's not like the next vacation I want to go on. It's not the next business thing I want to make happen. It's not the, my church growing. It's not my career taking off. It's not my problems being fixed. It's not my cars not having issues. It's not, it's not any of those things. All of those things are are they are is triggers that hit the restlessness that's constantly present. We think that these are just fleeting. We think that like that restlessness or that anxiety is an imposter that comes and visits us every once in a while. But actually, what's happening is when the issues of life come and tap right here, it's tapping into something that's that's in your heart. So the only thing that is the antidote is the, is the experience of the sufficiency of Christ. When you hold this bread, when you, when you take this bread, when you drink this juice, you are participating in the all-sufficiency, the finally ending all hunger and thirst movement of Jesus to His death and resurrection. That's what you're doing in this. And I want to live a way of life. I threw out this term monastic community. But I want to live a way of life that represents that I'm at rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. I want to live a way of life that looks like this bread and this juice. So I want to ask you to close your eyes and just say this. Say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. It's not even doing the Jesus things that will make me happy, that will make me whole. It's Jesus and His presence and His sufficiency. So I want you to eat with that in mind. Lord, we, let's lift this bread. We, we thank You for this broken body. We thank You that we today do not just participate in a symbol, but we take the broken body. We take the broken body. And we say thank You that Your body was literally physically broken. That Your side was pierced. 
We thank you, God. We receive this in Jesus' name. Can we lift this juice? And we say, thank you, Jesus, that your blood was spilled. And as Hebrews says, your blood speaks a better word to the restlessness in our souls. Your blood speaks a better word to our tribulations, our our anxieties. Your blood speaks a better word. We say thank you that we participate in the blood of Jesus. And by being in this blood, we are grafted into the family of God. We bless you and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, you can receive. How many can say amen? I want to tell you something real quick. I've told you this for a few times, but we're going to close up at this. But the reason that we decided to finish our church services at communion is I, I grew up in a setting where we finished with the altar call. And I felt like God spoke to me and He said, we are not going to finish on the response of man, but we're going to finish on the action of God towards humanity. And so we finished with this as the highlight of what we do because this is the highlight of the Gospel. And so I want to pray and close. Can we, can we uh, bring this uh, blessing prayer? You can close your eyes and I will pray this over you. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you. Wherever He may send you, may He guide you through the wilderness protect you through the storm. May He bring you home rejoicing at the wonders He has shown you. May He bring you home rejoicing. May He bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors.